I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I'm Dave Kittle, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all their practice. And today we have Scott Weevil on the podcast. He is either owner and co-owner or partner in uh, two different companies or practices, an M&A advisory firm, Sierra Pacific Partners, and also transactional M&A work and transactional law at Weevil Law. Scott, welcome on the show. Dave, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and just like you said, you know, I'm, um, I have the law firm, we have a law as well as the MA advisory firm. And we sort of work on the same type of projects, but just with different hats on. Obviously, on the MA advisory side, we're more into the business end. And on the legal side, we're more um, on the legal end, for sure. Yeah, awesome. So for the audience that doesn't know you, maybe a little bit of more of your background or a bio on your history before those two firms or how you kind of split your time and, and what you do in day, day in and day out. Yeah, for sure. I think right now the time splits about 50-50 between the two. So we work, work equally on each and it's good because we see deals from different angles, which is one thing that I enjoy sort of doing about that. But I, you know, I started as an M&A lawyer, got an arms back in, I think, 2008 at this point, And then um, moved to California, joined Wilson Sonsini, again, pretty much working on M&A transactions. So I sort of came out of the big law public company um, M&A space. Ended up moving away from the Bay Area and I actually live in Lake Tahoe. The office is based in Sacramento and sort of ended up starting my own firm in 2016. And have basically been focused on M&A and corporate law. I mean, we do other stuff like that you would expect with um, with corporate law, like shareholders agreements, forming entities, stuff like that, you know, structuring things. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, excellent. Sounds great. So today we're going to talk about potentially some some war stories, anonymous stories, anecdotes, experiences that you've had with different clients or opposing sides of the table. And let's get into it. Let, let's get into some of the experiences that you've had, whether on the buy side or the sell side. And you could just kick it off in terms of like what you want to start talking about. And like I said in the pre-interview, any of these anonymous anecdotes or or stories are things that certainly have happened and probably will happen again in the future. And the practice owners and the, the business owners watching or listening, I believe, can learn from these stories and these experiences before they actually go in and consider selling their practice, before they speak to a broker or advisor, or before they reach out to an attorney or an advisory firm. So I just wanted to kind of kick it off there and, and let you go. For sure. And I would say, you know, we were talking about in the pre-interview that I don't have any kind of golden thread that runs through all of these. But I would definitely say that on the legal side, you get a very quick sense of who's across from you as far as a law firm. And the style can be one that's focused on getting the deal done, you know, with reasonable market terms, or it can be one of negotiating very hard and close for their client, or it can be one of almost incompetence where they're not deal lawyers. And so that's something that it's really good to get, you know, to get a sense of. 
And just to be clear, it can be driven by the lawyer or the client. For instance, you know, we're often on the sell side across from private equity buyers and PE buyers run a really tight process. And I'm not necessarily saying that process is unfair, but it creates a lot of hoops for sellers to jump through with disclosure schedules, diligence and stuff like that. And it can either be because of the size of the transaction or just because it's not their money. They have investors and they have fiduciary duties to fulfill to those investors. So I don't want to throw the lawyers under the bus always, but there's definitely different styles with that. You know, I think my goal, particularly if we're getting a draft from a buyer on the sell side, is to spill as little red ink as possible to get the deal done for a client. You know, we're not trying to correct comma errors and things like that. I mean, I, I like to think I know grammar rules, but that's not really my function. If the meaning of the clause is clear, but you know, speaking of sort of protracted lawyer issues. We recently closed a deal that I think was almost two months in the making down in Florida. And it just became sort of a protracted, I think my client would fairly say nightmare for a number of reasons. We had a buyer group and each of the buyers had their own lawyer. And then we also had the seller with his lawyer. All of the lawyers, I think nitpicky is relatively fair statement. And it just devolved into this process where before we could go to the seller, we would have to have negotiations among the buyer group, come up with a coordinated position, then go to the seller with that position. And it was just, it drug on way too long than it should have. So that's one thing to think about. If you're going in with a group of buyers, if you want to have someone and a lead counsel and a point person. I'm not saying that would have been possible in this instance, but that's one thing to anticipate because, you know, this was a relatively small transaction under a million dollars. It should not take two years to close a transaction under. There were other factors. The buyers worked in the practice they were buying. There were things like that. But I think um, that's definitely one thing that I saw is just deals dragging on longer than they should. Got it. So just to recap before that, you were saying there could be different reasons as to why deals are prolonged or protracted. And you were saying whether it's private equity or was it, were you saying private equity where those executives that you're saying it's not really their money because private equity has a fund or they also raise debt anyway. So were you saying in that instance, they were, I guess, so they're on the buy side and and they're like, okay with overspending and, and that part that was changing the deal or what was that specifically that was causing some like issue or, or challenge. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I think private equity's double-edged sword, right? They drive hard bargains. That's how they that's how they get they make their money. But on the other side, they're professional deal makers. They like to close deals that should be closed. And so you can expect them to put pressure on moving things forward. But because it's not their money, they don't have the ability like an individual buyer would have to say, hey, the diligence is good enough. We don't need it all documented. We trust the guy. Let's just move towards close, right? They have fiduciary duties they have to fulfill. So even if they lay out a process that's ultimately fair, it will likely be a much more intense process than one that maybe an individual purchaser would lay out. And what I mean by that, and I'm not trying to get too much into the weeds, but like the disclosure schedules. You may have 20 disclosure schedules you have to fill out in a private equity deal, which is always a very painful part of the process on the sell side. Whereas in a private buyer deal, you may only have five or something like that. And so it's every stage of the process, you're likely to have more ancillary agreements, just more hoops. And the diligence itself is going to be much, much more directed. So, 
That's why you'll see that style of deal from them is just because things need to be buttoned up. Got it. And you also mentioned you wanted to cover in the pre-interview, like different types or styles of potential lawyers or attorneys in terms of like, you're saying like knowing who's across the table from you. And we had a previous experience where we were interfacing with a potential seller and that seller's attorney, we believed that it was an attorney that he had had for, you know, 10 or 20 years. We looked up, you know, we Googled the attorney's name and it's like mostly like commercial real estate and we're not buying real estate. It was like, we were looking at this practice that was a, a lease agreement and no real estate involved. And so that, that let's just say like, it certainly made the conversations a little challenging when my side, we have like a special, like a healthcare specialist law firm and the sell side, this practice owner has kind of like a buddy lawyer or commercial real estate lawyer, which there's a little contract law overlap maybe, but not fully like selling practices and businesses all the time. So is that something that you guys have seen? Yeah, for sure. And it comes up, I guess, I want to say in a couple of different ways. So on the one hand, it can almost be positive because they don't want to fight over the salient points because they don't realize what the salient points are. But they can also choose to fight over points that don't really matter because they don't really realize what's important, which can bog bog the deal down. And then sort of in line with both of those, you can have problems getting deals done because they don't know the typical tempo and they're taking time to educate themselves on the documents. And in fact, one of the smartest moves I've ever seen by a, not not many folks will do this, but one private equity firm that I was across from on the sell side, they actually offset like 30 to 40,000 in legal fees for the seller, mainly because they did want the seller to go out and hire a lawyer that could help them push their process to get the deal across the table. And by that, I don't mean that the um, seller's counsel was going to be beholden to the PE firm. I meant somebody that knew how to respond to their diligence requests and just how to move the deal forward. You don't see that often, but that, that was a unique approach there. But yeah, you see that quite a bit in real estate probably more crossover than sometimes you find yourself up against the seller's daughter who's a prosecutor. I mean, trust me, I, I would never set foot in a criminal courtroom. I don't know what happens. I mean, I've seen law and order, but right. and it's a wild card. You, and I think the best thing you can do, you're probably not in a position as opposing counsel to recommend directly that they switch counsel, but that's something you can weigh on your client to have that business level discussion. Like if things do get bottlenecked, Hey, you may need to bring in someone for help. And oftentimes, you know, clients that they on the other side, if they don't mind paying, they can have their friend or their longtime attorney work in conjunction with a transactional lawyer. So they do get that, you know, that comfort of having someone they're used to working with also in the transaction. So that's one of the things that we've done in the past is suggest that. Got it. And now in that example of the PE firm suggesting to the seller, like, hey, you should get some legal counsel because it's going to help push and move this deal forward faster or more efficiently, the PE firm was going to then add 30 or 40K to the purchase price to kind of cover the legal costs for the seller. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Now, obviously, PE firms are smart. There were some tricks to this in this situation. The 30 grand offset was paid at closing. So if you didn't close, you, you got none of it. And they had already gotten in place before my client had counsel a pretty oppressive letter of intent. And so by the time that she retained counsel, there wasn't that much we could do without renegotiating the LOI. 
so th- there were some there were some uh, I don't want to make it sound completely altruistic. They had thought cleverly about how to do this, but it was just in general the approach was interesting. Yeah. And you were saying like an oppressive LOI. So like there were some binding components to it or or the some of the high level price and terms might have been binding or what? So it wasn't really binding. It was just it's culturally, even if the LOI is non-binding, it's really hard to negotiate, renegotiate things absent new information, right? And so what actually happened in this case is I looked at the purchase agreement, right? And I kept saying, oh, yeah, these terms are oppressive. And so I was commenting on them to the other law firm. The other law firm came back with comments like, this is in the LOI. And I went back, looked at the LOI. I'm like, am I nuts? This is not in the LOI at all. I email my client like, hey, did you send me the whole LOI? Yes, yes, you've got the whole thing. You've got the whole thing. Are you sure? Yes, yes, you've got the whole thing. A week later, oh, yeah, there's this exhibit. And so I get sent this exhibit and the exhibit was filled with M&A jargon. You know, what reps are fundamental reps, you know, and, and all this stuff that we know as M&A lawyers call it something a fundamental rep. It's not going to be subject to the basket and cap. It's going to have a longer survival period. If that's all jargon, that's OK. We don't need to get into it. But basically, a lot of that typical back and forth that's important to the seller because the indemnity provisions are super important um, was already settled in that LOI. And you are right. We could have for sure said, hey, this is non-binding because it was. It was non-binding how, how it typically is. And we could have said, hey, you had, in this case, a physician who definitely didn't know what that stuff meant. You knowingly had them sign this, knowing that they did not know what it meant. So we're going to reopen, right? That's not how my client wanted to go. She wanted to sell her business and we chose to to live with it. But that's just an example of sort of um some of the some of the cleverness that was associated with that. And that is why, um, different topic, but I think that is why you want to get your advisor involved in the LOI stage. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Particularly if you get something of that detail. And uh, also recently, you want to get your advisor involved when they can have meaningful impact. And what I mean by that is it's not super helpful to send your lawyer, particularly an LOI, and say, hey, the other side's agreed to this. We've agreed to it. Both both brokers or whatever are signed off on it. Like, let us know if there's anything just terrible in this, right? That doesn't really give you the opportunity for great input because if you notice small things, you know, well, hey, I don't want to up- upset the the flow for this. So you really want to get your advisor in where they can actually make a difference on that for you. Yeah, I want to just circle back. So the, the LOI with that story, the LOI and then the separate exhibit, it's like the buyers or the, was it a PE buyer or it was a, it was a PE buyer. So it was a, a PE buyer, private equity. And I'm thinking, as you're telling the story, I'm like, why would the exhibit be a separate file? I mean, obviously they did it for that type of a thing to happen, right? For the potential seller to share it with you, to share it with their legal counsel and be like, oh yeah, here's the PDF or here's the document for the LOI and potentially not include the, the separate exhibit, right? I wasn't involved at the stage, so I don't know how it was signed and packaged. You know, I can't say that it was initially totally separate from the LOI. I mean, if I did it, it'd be signed all in one thing. Right. But, I mean, That's I think I mean. it definitely, you know, I had this conversation on LinkedIn with someone about something else, but aesthetics matter in these documents. And you create some kind of exhibit, you put it in size eight font and two columns. It just gives the reader sort of the perception that this is meaningless boilerplate. 
And it also makes you think, hey, it's not really negotiable. It's like when you go get your cable contract, you can't negotiate with Comcast or whoever your your provider is. And that's sort of what this exhibit looked like, was that, hey, this is something that's non-negotiable. It's standard terms. It's in jargon, which they knew the unrepresented, you know, just like um, this is a pediatrics practice. I can't speak pediatrics jargon for sure. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't expect a pediatrician owner to speak uh, M&A jargon. So anyway, but yeah, I've only seen something like that happen once. But that being said, like particularly if the LOI is getting that level of detail, it's something you need to look out for and say, hey, maybe I should bring my advisor in. And obviously, parties can be reluctant to do that because they don't want to pay uh, you know, a lawyer until they, they sort of know they have a deal. So I get, I get that aspect of it as well. Got it. Any other examples or you know, war stories, challenges, things that you've seen, again, either on the buy side, sell side that surprised you during the interaction or maybe was a surprise kind of looking back in the rear view mirror? Well, I think, you know, as you would expect, particularly those, you know, that are out there searching for off-market deals, it is very, very hard to negotiate with the seller who professes that they don't really care if they sell or not. I've seen it happen. And I would say as a searcher, just walk away because you can't negotiate anything. When you change anything, they say, that's fine. I'm not going to sell. But where I see this come up and I'm in this transaction right now is if you're actually an employee, if it's a practice and you're an employee, do you have that connection? You know, this is the practice that you want to buy, but it can be very, very difficult. We're doing one of the strangest things I've ever done right now, which is we're negotiating, trying to negotiate a deal to actually close some two years from now because the seller just does not want to sell. And it creates all kinds of interesting, um, Interesting issues as a lawyer because a lot can happen to a business in two years, right? And so, you know, the, the buyer, the seller wants to know that we're committed to buy. And, you know, we, we're sort of like, yeah, we're committed. We would have liked to close January 1 of 2023. So, so we are indeed committed. It's you that we're worried is squirrely, but those can be very hard, you know, transactions. So that's something too. And I would say, like I said, if you don't have a connection, maybe step away from that one. Other things that I've seen on the buy side are tremendous opportunities, but there's every time you uncover a new rock in diligence, you find something else. And particularly I was dealing with um, a search funder, super smart guy who was looking at a roofing company in the Pacific Northwest. And there were all these tax liens. And, you know, the seller had told him stuff like, oh, it only covers my personal property. Well, it's legal jargon. It means personal property versus real property, right? So yes, it covers all the assets of the business because it covers, you know, the personal property of the business. And it was, uh, you know, my, my buyer, this buy side, he was super enthusiastic about it, but eventually we just had to talk him down from that. And I think the seller actually helped because we, we basically were like, Hey, these liens have to be paid at closing. Your bank's going to make them be paid at closing. Like there's no way they're not paid. But once the liens were paid, there wasn't going to be anything left for a seller. So that was one. I know we see one of the things that particularly search funders that have been like, in the PE space that I would say be wary of is overly complicated deal structures. And what I mean by that is if you've come out of a private equity fund, you were, you know, an analyst or something like that, and you're doing, you know, $100 million plus deals, that level of complexity that you see with earnouts, rollovers, we we see that pretty commonly, I would say, but even in the sub $1 million range at this point, but the less complicated you can make a deal, particularly, you know, when you're below whatever the $10 million purchase price point, the better. 
that those fancy things that you did to buy a $500 million company at the PE firm, that may not be well received by a seller that's, you know, in the lower end of the lower middle market or on Main Street. So that that's another one. I think speaking of rollover equity, again, this may be more of a sell side concern because if you're PT looking to buy your own practice or something like that, you're probably not going to give rollover equity. But I always advise sellers to look very carefully at it because rollover equity is essentially where you keep, if you're a seller, you keep some stock in your company or you get stock in the, in the company that's acquiring your, your assets. And there's a lot of lawyers and advisors out there that think it's all funny money. And there is maybe a certain truth to that, but it can also be a tremendous opportunity. I mean, if you have a buyer with a proven track record, typically, if their goal is to sell you probably in another five years and their goal is a multiple on invested capital of the 3X, which is pretty common, that means if you roll 33% of your proceeds and that actually plays out, lots of assumptions there, but that actually plays out, then your second exit is as lucrative as the first. So that's something too that we we talk to sellers about. The, the problem is a lot of activity, particularly that I see in healthcare, particularly in med spas and things like that, it's funds without a proven track record. So it's really, really hard to diligence that. I mean, if you if you're going up against a PE firm that has a 20 year history, particularly in the industry, you know, you can see, hey, that's borne out. I'm going to probably make money here. But it's a little bit different thing if it's a fund that was formed yesterday to buy your business. So I think those are those are some of the things that, you know, I've seen sort of lately last couple of years. Got it. So also in terms of deal structures and deal terms, we have a, another gentleman on the show, uh, Bill Snow, investment banker, and he was suggesting that if he was advocating for his client on the sell side, if the buyer was like us, if, if the buyer was suggesting some amount of like a seller's note or seller's finance to be personally guaranteed by the buyer, is that something that you would... I mean, not not to kind of put you like under the gun there, maybe it depends on the buyer. Maybe it depends on the rest of the other... The price and the rest of the terms. Do you typically advocate for or see seller's notes and seller finance in general? And then sometimes you see them as kind of like unsecured or non-collateralized versus there's a personal guarantee that those payments are actually going to be made over X amount of time. Yeah, I would say seller notes are very, very popular. You know, SBA lenders particularly like to see seller notes. A lot of times in the SBA space, you know, you've probably heard that earnouts aren't allowed. Can basically get to a reverse earnout through an adjustable note. So a lot of times you'll have a note just for that purpose. So you can offset the note if certain targets aren't met. Similarly, as lawyers, we like having a note because we'll typically offset indemnification claims. So if it turns out that, you know, we have to pay as the new owner, whatever, a hundred thousand bucks that the, the seller should have paid, we can just take a hundred thousand dollars off that note. So you'll see notes for lots of different reasons that don't necessarily directly correlate to the buyer needing the. Um, point, I would say, saying that basically they, they can't do anything with the assets that we just sold them, the collateral, they have to maintain them and, and things like that. And that also we're going to want to see that personal guarantee for the most part. Yeah, for sure. Anything else in terms of some of the uh, common common pitfalls or challenges? You mentioned one big one, which is sellers out there watching, listening, if they kind of go into this process with like the friend or family attorney, as opposed to an actual specialist. I mean, and anyone that's listening now that if they're a physical therapist, they're a practice owner, we want patients to come to us instead of them doing some random, you know, home treatment or some, you know, looking at some exercise on YouTube or something like that. So it's like, we advocate for our patients to come to us 
for the, you know, come to us for the specialty care. If you have sciatica, back pain, you know, injury, whatever, and don't try to, you know, troubleshoot it on your own and kind of try to figure it out on your own. And the same type of thing here, right? So like find a great broker advisor and then connect with a experienced specialist legal counsel, whether it's one individual or a firm, because there could be a lot of issues that they might save some bucks on the short term, but in the long term could really, really hurt their overall practice and their financial situation, right? For sure. Absolutely. I mean, it, typically when this is said by lawyers, it's used, you know, with medical analogies, because I think that's what makes it so clear. But obviously, if you need a, a knee replacement, you don't go see a neurologist, right? Oh, they went to medical school, you know, it's gonna be fine. Um, you want somebody that does lots of knee replacements. And, and I would say M&A transactions, I think there's a lot of M&A lawyers would tell you this, that a lot of what we do is not really law-based. It's that we've seen these issues over and over and over again, and we know how to spot what issues are likely to arise under certain circumstances. And I think particularly, you know, particularly on the buy side, but also the sell side, I think that's really the experience you're looking for. I mean, there's, you know, there is law, like we can say, like in California, you have a a duty to try to achieve earnouts in Delaware and New York is spotting potentials for conflict before they arise. Yeah. Also, so on your LinkedIn, Scott, it says, I... Let me, let me make sure I get this correct. I make deals happen. So that is, I love the simplicity of it. When you have clients speak with you that are looking to you know work with you, like, so how would like a client maybe is like, well, so you know, what does that mean? Or, or how do you make deals happen? So obviously there's in terms of like experience and expertise, what are, what are some like off the bat efficiencies or, or specialty areas that you and your firm work in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think on the Sierra Pacific partner side, you know, where we're primarily sell side, I think we work very, very hard at the marketing and proactive outreach for buyers. And I think we try to keep the pace up. You know, time does kill deals. That is, that is true. And I think the more that you can keep the pace up, sort of the better with that. And I think we also try to provide where it's received, if it's received by sellers, it is hard to say, but we try to provide practical advice as far as pricing. Um, we're not trying to beat our sellers up to price low. But on the other hand, we'd also like to see their business sell if that's what they truly want. On the legal side, sort of similarly, I think a lot of what we do is just keeping the pressure up to keep the deal moving forward. And again, part of that has to do with picking your battles and not nitpicking things that just really don't matter to you. Like, you know, one of the things you can argue forever about is, you know, I'm out here in California. Are we going to do California law? Are we going to do Delaware? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, I sort of tell my clients 95% of private equity funds, they're going to, we're going to end up with Delaware. It's not something we should spend a whole lot of time worried about unless it's really, really important for whatever reasons. I mean, we can get into why. You know, you may would prefer to do California. It's more convenient to litigate. Like I said about the earnouts a few minutes ago, a little bit more favorable there. But, you know, by and large, that may be not something that we should focus a lot of our attention on. So got it. And fairly recently, you posted something about you help a concierge physician practice. I, I can't recall if you were on the buy side or sell side, but you can give more color to it with that or other healthcare deals that you're seeing out there. What are you seeing in terms of like multiples and offers? Are you seeing, I mean, in general, there's probably a lot more activity this year than maybe, you know, two years ago. Where are we in terms of multiples and offers in regards to healthcare deals now in 2023 compared to before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic? You know, I think sort of towards the tail end of the pandemic 2021, across all industries, the multiples were up, particularly for the more Main Street 
more Main Street businesses just because there was so much money in the economy. I would say right now what I'm seeing with healthcare, it is very much practice dependent. And to give you an example, I think, you know, I saw a practice a little bit earlier this year. The steel didn't get to close, but I think they were doing like a, a 5X multiple on 500 grand of adjusted EBITDA. But that practice had multiple physicians in it. It had mid-levels and it had an aspect of recurring revenue. This was a physician practice. I have solo, you know, I've seen solo private surgery, plastic surgery practices that are generating over a million dollars a year in SDE. And it's hard to sell them for a 1.5x multiple. So I really think, you know, what I would say to your sellers out there is to think hard about their model because having most of the revenue come in and generated by that seller, you're sort of buyers are going to look at that as they're buying a job. And so you're pretty much excluding most investors from that framework unless you want to stay on post-closing, but potentially taking a short-term hit and cutting your profit margins by bringing on more providers, but then focusing more on the marketing to get those providers, you know, busy. That'll, you know, long term, that's going to create a more sustainable business for you. That's probably not running you crazy. And there's going to be buyers beating your door down. So that's a huge, huge difference. You know, two practices that on paper probably generating the same amount of revenue, roughly that the plastics practice I mentioned, and then this other specialty practice, but just drastically different multiples because of the model. And anything, anything with recurring revenue is obviously very, very attractive. That's why in plastics, they like to see a med spa function where the doctor's not doing the injections or the lasers. And they like to know that, hey, every six months, however often those folks are generally going to be coming back for Botox. Whereas for the procedures on the plastic side, those may be one and done. They're highly profitable, right? But you may, may never, ever see that patient again. And I just, I do a lot in plastic. So that's why I use that as sort of the analogy. But that's definitely something to think about with owners is the more, you know, in any business, the less that a business is dependent upon the owner, the better. And I will say like, speaking more broadly, I think the economic news out the last four to six weeks is largely good. I mean, it's looking like... um not an economist, so I'm just telling you what I perceive from what others perceive, but that the likelihood we go into a recession or a, you know, in any kind of meaningful recession seems to be lower. Um, I think that we are seeing inflation down. I think it's not, not actually down, but it's trending about normal at 3%. And I think that's given, uh, I'm seeing anecdotally more inquiries on my businesses from the buy side. Now, I don't know, you know, that's a lot to extrapolate to the economy at large, but I think the feeling is is good right now. So, yeah, of course, it's always going to be practice dependent in terms of valuations. And so you gave that example of 500K adjusted EBITDA, and that practice was then valued at a 5X multiple of that. And they were doing whatever, a couple million in revenue and 500 grand in adjusted EBITDA. And it depends on cities versus rural. And how, like you said, how many positions and providers are there. And then you were saying, so... The potential buyers in that situation were preferring that the physicians were not doing the injections or Botox and things like that because yeah. you should have like a nurse or someone else, a licensed person doing it because then it's a cheaper or lower cost of labor for those procedures. Well, not just lower cost of labor because the new buyer can come in and that physician owner can retire. And it's not a shock. The staff is still the same. And so the more revenue generally that the owner personally doesn't generate, the better. I would say in those cases. I've been trying to say that in a lot of episodes, which is the practice owners watching or listening, like the more that they can get themselves out of patient care, 
the better. And we had another episode recently about absentee ownership without staff or morale issues. And so the more that a practice owner can get out of a lot of these roles and responsibilities, the easier it is for them to sell and typically get a better valuation, right? Because the buyers can say, okay, well, you're going to want to get out in, I don't know, it depends, uh, 12 months, maybe 24 months, sometimes six months. It really just depends. But that practice owner is trying to get out potentially, and the buyer can have someone else fill in. They'll, they'll get another clinic director, a GM, someone to kind of fill that situation, whether it's a therapist, a physician, whatever it might be. But the more that these practice owners can get out of the day-to-day, or like you said, generating revenue and treating patients, the easier it is for them to get out potentially with better terms. 100%. And I guess another way to think about it is the absentee owner, is uh, provided the businesses run well, is almost perfect for this. Because if you have a practice with an absentee owner and the ownership changes, it's almost invisible to your patients, right? I mean, they don't realize that anything has changed. Now, this is not to say that if you truly love patient care, you can't do it. I I don't mean to say that at all. But you should be one. The practice shouldn't be named after you. And you should be one provider among many. And they swap you out. It doesn't make a difference. You just, you know, you want to have your your production sort of in line with the other providers you've got in that practice. So I'm not telling people you can't do patient care if that's truly your calling. But for sure, I, it may be counterintuitive, but doing being the hero business owner that everything has to go through, which is really being like a micromanager bottleneck. That's not what buyers are looking for because that's the hardest type of business to take over. Right. For anyone watching or listening, so if they know if they're the right fit for either of your businesses and practices, if someone was looking to reach out to Sierra Pacific Partners on the M&A advisory side versus Weevil Law, like what are the like who's the ideal client or practice for each of those so that folks watching or listening know if they should reach out to you or not? Yeah, for sure. So on the Sierra Pacific Partner side, we sort of do deals in all different ranges. I tend to do the larger M&A transactions, but I have other brokers who do smaller transactions. We work in most of the states. We have a couple focuses where we're generalists, but I've done a lot in healthcare. I will concede I haven't done PT practices before, so I'll rely on you for the expertise there. But we've done a lot with medical practices and dentistry, DSOs, MSOs, sort of things like that. Same on the legal side for that. And yeah, I think um, one... Biggest advice I can give as a broker is overpriced deals do not get inquiries. I know a lot of sellers think, hey, we'll list it high and we'll let them negotiate it down. In practice, that doesn't happen. They just keep scrolling. So that's something to think about. You need to be sort of in the in the strike zone to begin with if you want to get those leads. Um, on the Weevil Law side, you know, we're basically here to get deals done that should get done, particularly when we're on the buy side. But our goal is to protect both our sellers and our buyers. We, again, pretty much work throughout the country. We work everything from manufacturing to, like I said, healthcare, SaaS, a lot of different things. Um, we do the traditional M&A along with corporate corporate work. We do business, what I would call business law. So we do stuff like leases, employment light, and things like that. And I would say mostly we do transactions from about $1 to $40 million. But I would say the the sweet spot really in there for us lately has been right around that 5 to $10 million mark, something like that. We've done a lot of deals. So... Awesome. And for anyone to contact you, whether website, LinkedIn, email address, what's a good place for the audience to reach out to you if they want to touch base? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, Scott Weevil, W-E-A-V-I-L. I I know it's a weirdo last name that my wife probably isn't happy with, but any 
anyway, <laughs> that, 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 that's where we are. And then it's Weeble Law spelled the same way in Sierra Pacific Partners. And those are all good ways to get me. If you get me on LinkedIn, I think it's got all my contact info there for the emails and stuff like that. Awesome, Scott. Well, it was great to get you on here. Anyone watching or listening, if you find this helpful and advisable, valuable in any form, subscribe to the Dave Kittle Show on YouTube, iTunes, or Spotify. And we'll catch you next time here on the show. Scott, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.